How does a buyer's mm. market, which is happening in the secondary market, we're hearing that a lot, but how does that transfer over to the logic of an art fair and also like Art Basel Miami Beach next week, for example? Yeah, that's a great question, Kate. I think it really influences what people bring. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, we're here at the end of the year, and we are back with our monthly chat cast where we bring together some of our reporters to talk about the big stories that are in the air. There's quite a lot to talk about this month. So we're going to be touching on the state of the art market as evidenced by the recent art auctions going into the big Miami art fairs in December. We're going to be talking about the state of art and politics in Italy, a story that may or may not touch on J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings. And we're going to be talking about Enish Kapoor and his Vantablack ultra-black artworks, which are on view in New York. Here with me to talk about these stories is our senior market reporter, Eileen Kinsella in New York. Hey, Ben. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And our senior editor, Kate Brown in Berlin. Hey, Ben. So I'm very excited to have you both here to talk. Before we get into all these many, many stories, I did want to talk about any art that we've seen. Eileen, have you seen anything actual art when you weren't reporting on the market, that excited you? Yeah, great question. I took full advantage of my long weekend to go to MoMA yesterday. Ed Rocher was on the top of my list and this fabulous retrospective that was there. I always sort of go into these things with not quite sure what I'm going to see, but I absolutely loved it. I think it was like doubled down on everything I sort of knew about him from his word paintings to his other explorations like gunpowder drawings, liquid drawings that I had seen but never really knew about. Completely distinct bodies of work and how important they were and how they mark like this evolution. And it was just an absolute pleasure. I actually want to go back. I want to see it again. Did it change the way you think about him at all? I mean, he's such a well-known artist. Yeah. I mean, I just think he's better than I ever even thought he was. And I've always thought he was a great artist. Um, I see what I've heard from people is that it shows that when he's good, he's great. And when he's bad, he's merely okay. (laughs) I would actually agree with that, even though I came out thinking he was pretty great. (laughs) And Kate, what's cooking in Berlin? Well, I was actually at the Neue National Gallery again, the one that's now directed by Klaus Biesenbach. And they just changed over their permanent collection display, which they only do every few years. So that was pretty exciting and also very packed. And so they have a new show called Extreme Tension that is a new organization of the world. Extreme Tension. Yeah, it's uh, about post-1945 work. And it's really well laid out, actually. Like the opening sort of room, I won't go into all of it, obviously, but the opening room is like divided down the middle and it has like abstract art on one side and socialist realism on the other side. And it kind of continues on like this. And there's all these like nice installation interventions that bring to light some overlooked artists from the collection. So yeah, I was quite impressed with it. Did you discover anybody in particular new? Not so much, I'm afraid to say, but it's been a few times now that I've been able to see the collection turn over. And it's always just nice to see how they recontextualize some of the same work, you know, and how many different readings it can have. Yeah, art history is always changing. What about you, Ben? Well, I saw, I think for me, the show of the year at the DR Foundation in Chelsea, this Colombian artist, she was in the last Venice Biennale where I 
noted her work as one of the highlights, Delcy Morelos. And I was just floored by this show. You know, people should go see it. I think she is a real thoughtful artist who is a star. She works with Earth. So these two full room installations, these big installations, but they're really impressive in how they use space and really activate all your senses. Like she has this particular distinctive smell that she uses is like a mixture of cacao and cloves that's part of the work and the first chamber is I don't know all these little structures built up on the floor filling the room so you feel like you're soaring over a landscape looking down at all this stuff and then you walk into the next room in the first room you felt like you were kind of towering over the art and the next room is just full of this massive installation of earth this big kind of ziggurat of earth that makes you feel really small. And just walking between those two rooms, I thought it was really expert use of space and scale. And you felt your own body, you felt the presence of the art as an object. And it drew on earth art for me and activated senses that I hadn't felt activated in art space in a while. And it felt like it was full of thoughts about the environment and about art and space. Can't recommend it enough. If you're in New York, it's please great. I'm see definitely it. gonna check it out. Yeah. It's actually just one of the more moving and interesting art experiences I've had anytime lately. I can still remember um that work at the Venice Biennale. Like I can almost smell it when I think about it. She had such a powerful piece. <laughs> yeah, there. well they say that smell is one of your most, you know, the senses that most activates your memory. And absolutely, like I remember that is like a almost a semi-abstract maze made out of earth, but I just can call it the smell of it to mind almost instantly. She really is doing things with art that really stick in the brain. Ben, when I go, I'll have to compare it to Ed Rocher's chocolate room. Oh, yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Seems like a lot of uh, cacao chocolate themes going on. <laughs> yeah, well, into your trends. <laughs> chocolate in art. Well, speaking of trends and getting into the nitty gritty of the site, Eileen, you've spent the last weeks in the auction room covering the big fall art sales, which are an important barometer for people going into the big art fairs in Miami coming up. So why don't we just start by you telling us what happened? Yeah. Yeah. And what we learned. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was kind of thinking heading into this season that it was sort of inevitable that there would have to be a drop because last fall at this time was like this offering of Paul Allen's collection. I don't think it's ever happened that in a single sale you saw a minimum of five works that took over $100 million each. So like Hmm. heading into this, you're already competing with half a billion dollars. So I was kind of just gauging like what our estimates were versus what we had last year. We were kind of bracing for like anywhere between a 25, 30% drop. And that did happen. But there was also this feeling of like, I think it has to do with the broader economy, just greater caution, greater selectivity. It was still really strong and really healthy, but you just did not see five works going over $100 million. I mean, by my calculations, I think one went over $100 million. That was a Picasso from the Emily Fisher Landau collection that made 140 million with fees. That seems to be the one off, like the strongest one. So that gives you an idea of sort of the landscape, like the extremes that were there last year versus this year. The other thing that I feel like we're trying to do as market journalists is just keep up with 
some of the spin. So, for instance, mm-hmm. there's always a lot of spin. There's always a lot of spin, spin city in there, but <laughs> the spin is getting even more intense. So, I'm going to tout our by the numbers column because that's our way of really breaking down what spin they're giving us and how we're interpreting it. A really key part of that is withdrawals, where it used to be that right. auctions used to like come up before the sale and say. By the way, this evening, you know, lot 10 and 11 or, you know, 12, like maybe a handful have been withdrawn. What does this mean? Because I only observe these things, but yeah, that is this rash of withdrawals and mid-sale withdrawals was one of the big stories that yeah. sometimes there are artworks, choice artworks that are for sale and they're withdrawn beforehand. So people right. are counting on selling them and then they get taken away. But it seemed like the trend this time was in mid-sale, they would announce suddenly that something that people were there for was not um, right. over sale. So I don't know. What does that mean? Well, is that that's a new thing? And like, are people mad? Like, you know? like, in my mind, it means two things. First off, if you consign, say, a $10 million Picasso or Willem de Kooning to a sale, you don't withdraw it unless you're getting really strong indications in the days and even hours leading up to the sale that it might not sell, right? Like you'll go to the auction house, maybe you'll have a conversation. Hey, should we lower estimates? If you have a really strong feeling that it's not going to sell, you you know talk with them and then the lot will be withdrawn. In the olden days, and I'm saying olden days, like as, as recently as a few years ago, that announcement would be made at the start of the sale. So say that there's 50 lots and they withdrew three. They'll tell you which those three lots are. Now there's no pre-sale announcement. So you're just kind of going along in the auction and it's like this big lot, like in your catalog, you know, comes up, it's like a $10 million lot and all of a sudden it's gone, it's vanished, it's withdrawn and they move on really quickly. And you're kind of like, huh? So to me, that suggests two things. One, that you didn't think it was going to sell, but now, and this is what I mean about keeping up with the spin, that hasn't even, as far as we know, it hasn't been officially decided or announced before the sale. So like, when was that actual decision made? Was it made when like, say a Giacometti didn't do too well, two lots earlier? This is kind of like, What I mean when I say we're trying to keep up with how rapidly things are happening, it's not just the withdrawals, it's also guarantees, which are, you know, when people outside the auction house assume risk or the auction house assumes the risk. I was at at least one sale this past season where there was like discussion between the auctioneer and the person sitting on his left and a pause. And then all of a sudden the auctioneer announces to the room, oh, by the way, this lot is being backed by a third party guarantee which I know I'm getting into the weeds here, but I think the larger picture, if I back out a bit, is just to say that there is wheeling and dealing going on up until literally the second before a lot comes on the auction block. So it's more important than ever for us as like if we're trying to observe and have transparency with our numbers and our reporting to really pay attention to that. Like how do the numbers differ from what I got from the house two weeks ago to what I get on auction night? One good example was that at Sotheby's Modern Evening Sale, which I covered Monday, November 13th. At the start of the week or the sale, there was 41 lots. And over the course of the sale, I believe it was eight lots that were withdrawn. So that's about 20%. That's a huge portion of a sale to be withdrawn. And it suggests a lot of jitters. If they don't announce that as such in their press releases, it sounds like the sale went really well, right? Like, I think if you don't count those, it was like a 94% sell-through rate or something as opposed to 74%, which is very different. (laughs) Kate, that is a very good point. So that's what we're doing with By the Numbers is we're telling you what the official sold-through percentage is and then what our calculation is based on if you didn't have eight lots that were withdrawn because they thought they were going to fail. It lowered the sell-through rate by 20%. And I also was able to see that the 
resale estimate was $20 million lower than what it was previously. Can I ask you a question, just outsider question about these numbers and (laughs) how people relate to these (laughs) things? Okay, so there's all these horse race stats or like the sell-through rate and so on that observers judge these things by. I would think that it's just like the only number that matters is money, right? You know, right. <laughs> you know, there's a big Rothko that sold for not as much as people wanted and maybe under for what it was guaranteed for, but saying like it still allowed them to keep the prestige of the 100% sell-through rate. Like, what does that matter, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's where you get the spin. Like if you have 40 lots and you withdraw three and then you say that it was a quote-unquote white glove sale, that's their term for when everything's sold, it's not a white glove sale. This is what I'm talking about, that it's spin. It's not necessarily that the bigger number is what counts. Like for instance, you mentioned the Rothko's. Everybody was expecting like amazing things from this one that was offered in this uh, Emily Fisher Landau sale, you know, blue chip, mm-hmm. long term private collector. And yeah, New York real estate royalty. Exactly. Uh, and so there was like really high hopes for this thing to hit a minimum of 30 million and it hit 19 million, which isn't bad. But then on the other hand, there was another work on paper that was estimated far lower and it doubled its estimate. So people are always sort of looking in the details. It's not necessarily that more is better. It's like a lot of it is compared to what the expectations were. In other words, I mean, I think people are getting like fire sale prices on works, right? Like I can't remember what sale it was, you'll know, but like uh, Leo Koenig had bought Gerhard Richter's strip for like 70% less than what it was would have been worth a year before. Can you explain that one? Because he's one of the highest selling or most expensive living artists. Yeah. Katya did a great story on that. And it was like, we do these fun superlatives at the end of the week. And it was like steepest bargain. I think they were looking for at least two or $3 million for it. And Leo Koenig was saying that, you know, he loves Richter and he liked the painting and he did what some people do when they're like, kind of, okay, what the heck, you know, I'm going to just put in a low ball offer. I'll buy it for a million dollars, like a guarantee. And he couldn't believe that he got it. And so it's a gamble. I mean, you might be a guarantor and be stuck on the other end of a deal where it goes nuts. And, you know, maybe you have to compete to buy it. But in his own opinion, he got very lucky because he threw in a $1 million guarantee and he won the painting. Though now he does have to think about storing that painting, which is a huge, <laughs> good point, huge piece of wall you need. Yeah, anybody who was at Art Basel that year knows that. <laughs> a quote that I took out of the reporting was uh, commentators saying it was the most example-driven market I've seen. What does that mean? Yeah, I think like with Rothko, it's a perfect example. It's a work on paper. Like the high estimate was ten million dollars, and it went up to twenty million. So it's like somebody really wanted that. And the Landau Rothko, it's not that nobody wanted it. It's just that the expectation was 30 million and it didn't get anywhere near there. So it's sort of like, you know, you put those side by side. The same thing was happening with two Joan Mitchell paintings. One was an untitled one from 1959. Another was a one called Sunflowers, both really beautiful abstracts from 1991. And in the lead up to it, everybody was sort of just like looking at them and saying like, is the earlier one going to prevail? Is the later one? And they both did really well. They both sold within like a million and a half dollars of each other's, but it's just sort of like this bedding and this kind of compare contrast that leads up to it. Well, as I understand people, basically it's not even they want like an important artist, they want the best example of that important artist, like the most Picasso Picasso or the most Richter Richter. Yeah, I think that that's a fair assessment. Like the Monet that Christie's had, the water lilies, I think it was 65 million, was just 
a beautiful, beautiful example of that series. And of course, the competition for it was intense and it sold despite being guaranteed. So it's a buyer's market, right? For sure. I'm curious, like this term has been floating around for at least a year now, but what does that mean like for an art fair? How does a buyer's Mm. market, which is happening in the secondary market, we're hearing that a lot, but how does that transfer over to the logic of an art fair? And also like Art Basel Miami Beach next week, for example. Yeah, that's a great question, Kate. I think it really influences what people bring. Like you probably won't see some really out there risky names like there kind of is this flight to tried and true where you're going to see a lot of blue chip art that people know there's a lot of demand for that they hope that buyers will compete for examples (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean i can't obviously can't predict the future but you do see that buyers were setting the tone i've been to plenty of auctions where it just felt like things are going gangbusters you see it a lot at like the really ultra contemporary where there's a lot of speculation or there's just sort of this sense of like, I've got to get it. Like I have to compete for this Calder Mobile or this late Picasso because if I don't, somebody else is going to and I'm going to miss out. I don't get the sense that people are having like a lot of FOMO at the moment. I feel like they're setting the tone and I'll be really curious to see if that plays out at Art Basel Miami. I'll be excited to see what's on offer and see what kind of the mood is. You're going down to Miami Beach. I am. Are yeah. you excited for this or uh, I always- dreading it? sort of, (laughs) I have this fondness for Miami. It's sort of like going to another planet for a week. (laughs) I love Meridians. That's always the... What um, is Meridians? Just for people who don't know. Meridians is the platform where, I don't know if they invite or commission, but it's always these large scale works of art that anytime after I've walked through there, I mean, some of them are totally impractical, but really beautiful and thought provoking. And to me, it always feels like a complete who's who of the cutting edge of the contemporary art world, because any name that I see there, I either recognize as somebody who's really hot or is going to be. And it's always fun. It's just like very extravagant. And then you have, you know, the actual fair itself. Walking through there is always an amazing, well, some people would say exhausting, (laughs) but like just an amazing range of both new, like very new, very young galleries and established blue chip. And I don't know, I always find it kind of surreal and fun and exhausting at the same time. The city of Miami always kind of comes together for this fair. Are there any bigger events that you're looking forward to? I always laugh a little bit at some of the brand activations of the companies that go down there and try to get in on the circus. It wasn't that way always in the beginning, but I was looking through my invites today and I had everything from um, scented (laughs) public art sculptures, like a collaboration with a high-end brand, to some of these things I don't even know what it means. I got an invitation to something (laughs) called a third iteration AI in a house-like structure uh, <laughs> described as a world where AI and art collide. And that is classic. Something about an art AI Basil robot Beach artist. Right there. <laughs> house-like structure. <Yeah. laughs> it's an art-like thing in a house-like structure. <laughs> yeah. Art Basel Miami Beach, it's still the center of the whole thing, but it feels like more and more people are going and they're not even aware that there is an art fair going on. That's a great point. Yeah. Like the raison d'etre of the whole thing. It's such a brand circus at this point. I wonder how closely that circuit of the Art Basel Miami Beach spectacle how much it cycles with these like art market stories, you know, like they're kind of connected because it's all about some permutation of luxury consumption, but they're also like different, you know, there's the kind of brand fair aspect of it. And there's the kind of, you know, art connoisseur aspect of it. 
I was actually recently talking to a, a liquor company man who was telling me that they won't go down there because you can't even elbow your way into space. Like some brands have become so dominant at parties. And I think there's some of the ones that we see or get invited to, but that it's almost impossible to elbow your way in, which I thought was very funny in a counterintuitive way. Yeah. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see how the fair feels this year. I'm curious for your reporting, especially because Freeze has acquired two fairs in the States this year. And it feels like the stakes have gotten a little bit higher between those two companies. Now they're competing in a different way in the American uh, fair landscape, wouldn't you say? And, uh, you know, they've also been this major restructuring with Art Basel, like Bridget Finn is going to be the new director of Miami in 2024. They have more of a pyramid structure now than they did before. I still find the consolidation pretty surprising that Freeze bought both Expo and Armory. I'm so curious to see how it's going to shake out. And unlike the auction reporting where we can kind of change our standards to keep up with the numbers and try to get our own transparency and try to convey that to readers, we don't really have the same tools for art fair. So it's much more reporting or asking questions about strategy, asking exhibitors how you make your choices about fairs. And again, there's a lot of spin, so it's hard to cut through it. I'll be really curious to kind of judge the sentiment at Miami this year and see what people are thinking and talking about going forward in this new kind of fair landscape. A lot of times when people want to tell you the truth or it's something less than positive, they always want to go off record. They don't want to be the fair that's not invited back the next year. No, the gallery is not invited back next year because they said something. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of caution about that. Well, I think maybe that's our cue to go from those kind of art fair politics to politics in a slightly more institutional level and across the Atlantic to Italy, where there is a lot of news on the art and politics front coming out of the Georgia Maloney government. Kate, this is a big European story with a couple different dimensions. What's going on in Italy? Giorgia Maloney has been the prime minister since about last year when her Brothers of Italy party won something like a majority. I mean, it's a very complicated political scheme in Italy. Italian politics, not the <laughs> not the easiest to yeah, there's like Even for Italians, I understand. <laughs> I was talking to an Italian gallery director recently and she's even confused about it. Like, it's not that unusual for Italian governments or any government in Europe that has a big hand in funding public institutions to, you know, make changes when they get into power. But some have been saying that Maloney's government is like a little more interested in that than normally. Like they're really like seeing the cultural landscape as a place where they can like push their agendas a bit. And so to that note, weirdly enough, J.R.R. Tolkien has come into the fray and the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings that we all know, of course, is the subject of an exhibition in Rome that opened mid-November at Rome's National Gallery of Modern Art. And it was funded with 250,000 euros. It's going to travel around Italy in 2024, which doesn't like off the cuff sound like a very political story as you sort of introed it, but it is because it's pretty established, actually, that the far right sees a lot of allegories in The Lord of the Rings and in the sort of Tolkien storyline, you know, this sort of egregarian, anti-modern, traditional lore set against these kinds of evil industries that are coming in and invading the sort of clean white elves and then these like dark foreign invaders. I don't necessarily think that that's what Tolkien was doing when he was writing the story, but it has been taken up by the far right and been used to become sort of a Trojan horse to push forward xenophobic political platforms and this kind of thing. And Maloney is very interested in this story. 
And she's a big fan. Apparently she dressed as a hobbit and visited schools when she was in the young youth activist group of some far right party. It might have been the one that she's actually in. She called it a sacred text in her autobiography. So this opening of this exhibition has furrowed some brows for sure. Yeah, it's called Tolkien Man, Professor, Author, which is a title that I assume sounds better in Italian than it does in English. (laughs) It's not actually specific to Italy. There is a kind of a larger, I don't know, alt-right romance with Tolkien. There's a whole like school of literary studies that talks about fantasy versus sci-fi. And it's like sci-fi tends progressive and fantasy tends reactionary because it's always like looking back to this mythical past and the Tolkien lore, for instance, it's very racial. You know, it's about the race of man and how it unites with other races and so on. But just a very odd controversy that emerged on top of a couple of other controversies that are um, even maybe more substantial. One of the big features of the current politics is culture wars. And I think that that is what this is all about. This kind of reference to different kinds of, you know, to deflect some political energy into cultural symbolism. That's how you get the prime minister of Italy, you know, posing with Gandalf, uh, a statue of Gandalf for a magazine profile. But it's also how you get this fight over the Venice Biennale. So maybe go into that. Yeah, yeah. Roberto Cicuto, who was appointed by the center-left party and the then-cultural minister Dario Franceschini, he's not having his contract renewed in March 2024 as the president of the Venice Biennial, you know, which encompasses everything from the art biennial to the film festival. And Giorgia Maloney, her party was able to appoint someone new, and it's Pietro Angelo Buttafuoco, which will be interesting because he's obviously like been appointed by a far-right party. He's seen as a far-right intellectual. And we have this exhibition opening in April 2024, the Venice Biennale, curated by Adriano Pedrosa, called Foreigners Everywhere. An interesting title for this party to now have some influence over, because I think he's coming at it from a completely different angle, right? What kind of things will you be looking for going forward? Like, have we Mm -hmm. kind of experienced this swing before? I don't have as much insight into the Biennale as I feel like the two of you do, because you both reported on it. What things would you be looking for going forward in terms of like his imprint? And also like, what would you be watching about the Tolkien show? Like, how would it influence like your interest or willingness to attend? Or what would you be looking for in terms of like what happens with that show? These sort of like shifts to the other direction. It's a great question. I mean, you know, it seems from the reporting that, like I said, it's a culture wars kind of vibe. And part of the little statements that you read in the news, it's almost like the rhetoric is like, we have taken this position on the chessboard. Traditionally, we've thought of these cultural spaces as kind of fiefdoms of the left. And we are deliberately putting someone in here who's going to provoke progressive sentiment. I don't know if this new person can affect the new Venice Biennale because that's, you know, done and dusted. I think that if and when Butterfuco, you know, takes charge, then, you know, he sets the agenda going forward. And a lot of that role is fundraising and kind of a figurehead role. But it, I think there's definitely like a lot of rejoicing in the symbolism of it, you know, yeah. and also a lot of in the style of contemporary politics, rejoicing in the reaction to it. Butterfuco, I believe, wrote a very adoring biography of Silvio Berlusconi, the prime minister who's iconic for the right mm-hmm. wing in Italy and, you know, kind of went down in disgrace, but is still quite popular. There's one comment from 
a deputy group leader of the Vitelli d'Italia, Maloney's party that was in La Stampa, specifically said, another glass ceiling has been broken, which <laughs> right there, perhaps comparing it to Maloney being the first female prime minister of Italy, but nevertheless, noteworthy. Another glass ceiling has been broken. Often the Biennale Foundation has been considered by the left as a fiefdom in which to place friends and acolytes. But Afuco finally affirms it change that the Maloney government wants to imprint in every cultural and social center of the nation, only characters chosen for their depth, competence, and authority. Which is, you know, it sounds to me like a bit of an underhanded insult to Roberto Cicuto as well. They don't really say bits about him, but it really shows what they thought about what's been going on at the Biennial for the past decade or so. So yeah, I agree with Ben. I think that it will be in the air at the exhibition, I think, as I said, because of the subject matter of the show, you know, set against the political landscape in Italy, which is becoming more xenophobic. But I do think that it won't probably have much hands-on influence, but they will have a big hand in selecting the next biennial's head. And Pedrosa, the current curator of this coming Venice Biennale, is the first Latin American curator. That's been a big deal. And then you said against that, the fact that the show is called Foreigners Everywhere. And, you know, the last couple Venice Biennales have had this, as the global Biennale circuit tends to have, gathers an international selection of artists often working with themes about migration and identity and so on. And migration and identity are like the bread and butter of Maloney's politics. I mean, it's considered the most right-wing Italian government since 1945. There's all kinds of questions about how sympathetic people are to Italian fascism And there have been overtures, as I understand it, about people making provocative comments about how we shouldn't have, you know, foreigners running our Italian art museums. That was in some of our reporting. One of the quotes that a spokesman for the cultural ministry gave to Artnet News was, there's no prejudice against foreign directors, some of whom will certainly continue working in Italian museums. However, the situation met by the new ministry was paradoxical. That is that the national cultural institutions from the Uffizi to the Scala were in the hands of foreigners. We just need more balance. This upcoming Biennale is called Foreigners Everywhere. And they're literally talking about how there are too many foreigners in Italian cultural industries. So, I mean, that is very notable how far it goes, how symbolic it is. I don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. Does it affect how you guys think of J.R.R. Tolkien to know that he's mixed up in this whole thing? (laughs) I couldn't help, Ben, when I was reading about it, because I was kind of catching up on it after we talked. I was just thinking about the whole board ape controversy with Ryder Rips, how he was saying that there was like neo-Nazi and racist dog whistles. And I was just thinking of like taking that symbolism and that imagery and like kind of running with that and crafting your own narrative. And like, as we know, he lost his bid to say he was calling that out, but that's maybe a tangent. I'm just thinking of how symbols and imagery can be manipulated or how people can use things to say, this is exactly what this author meant. And from all other indications, he didn't mean that. Yeah. Well, there was a absolutely terrible new Rings TV show on Amazon not that long ago. And Independently of it just being absolutely terrible, just caused a hissy fit amongst the kind of 
online weirdos <laughs> who make their living trolling for rage clicks about this stuff because they had, you know, black dwarves in the newly reimagined Tolkien universe and uh, just an endless parade of stuff about how the plague of strong female characters and multiracial elves and fantasy creatures were um, ruining the Tolkien mythos. So as silly as it seems, there are people making their nut, mining this kind of terrain. And uh, I guess it's something that we have to take seriously. I have a question for you and Kate. If you had the opportunity to see this show, would you go see it? And what would be your feeling going in? How skeptical would you be? What would you be looking for? I read those books and I wasn't reading them with this reading in them. And I think he is an interesting author. So, I mean, there's 150 items in the show, photographs, yeah. letters and archival documents. I mean, I think the show itself might be a bit innocuous, you know, in terms of like some of the things we've been speaking That's about. It's point. more yeah. just like how it will be interpreted by different perspectives. Oh, honestly, the Morgan Library had a show of Tolkien's maps. It was not that long ago. That was really cool to see. I'd see this show because it has become a political issue. It'd be interesting yeah. to see, you know, it's funded by the government. It's become a thing. I'm for engaging with these things. I mm-hmm. I hope that we do get some review coverage of get it. Get some yeah, close look great. at those didactic panels and see what they, how they <laughs> yeah, know exactly. things and stuff. Yeah. So on the subject of going to shows, I wanted to get your take on a show that I recently saw, which is kind of newsy. So on my monthly rounds through Chelsea, actually the same day that I saw the great Delcy Morelos show at the Art Foundation and not that far away from it, I saw at Listen Gallery Anish Kapoor's new show in New York, which is the first display of his Vanta Black works. So this is an actual news story that goes back almost a decade. There's this British company that came out with a pigment that they called the blackest color in existence that absorbed, I don't know, upwards of 99% of all light that came into it. And Anish Kapoor, the very famous sculptor, set out to get the trademark or the exclusive rights in order to like work with this pigment. People were very angry about this. And actually at the Venice Biennale last year, debuted the first sculptures he had made using this pigment. I did not see it there, but I finally got to see them in Chelsea. And I have thoughts about them. Have you guys been following this story? Well, I followed the story and I don't know if, if I'm jumping ahead, I'll dial back. But Ben, as you know, a couple of years ago, I went to the New York Stock Exchange where this artist, Demet Streeb, who was the MIT artist in residence, had developed a similar technology. She says it's even blacker, like point something percent blacker. And it was used to conceal a diamond. And they had magnifying glasses. Oh, right, I remember this story, the the magical diamond that absorbed all light. So I had this amazing experience of going to like the boardroom, like the private dining room of the New York Stock Exchange where they had it set up. And I was the only one there with the artist and with her professor, Brian Wardle. And they just talked to me about the black technology and the diamond. And the whole conceit is that you're trying to prove that you can't see the diamond through the black. So they had magnifying glasses set up on either side of the vitrine and you're kind of looking to prove that you can see nothing. And it's like, I sort of wonder how the experience of determining how black the blackest black is, is different when you're not trying to look for a diamond. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, could you see the diamond? Let me ask you that. You could not see the diamond. You couldn't see anything. That's a magical proposition. Diamonds being, you know, a symbol of lustrousness. (laughs) These works are abstract geometrical shapes, in terms of 
being sculptures. So like there'll be a circular shape, which is a void and looks just like a flat circle. And then as you kind of circle it, you realize it's actually a concave form, you know, that's, that has depth that you just can't see because you can't look into it. Or a lot of the sculptures are called non-object black is their name. And as you circle them, it looks like a square. And then as you move to an angle, you see that the square has some kind of volume, you know, points sticking off of it or something like that. Is it a fun experience? Is it like you're trying to get a hold of your senses? Like I think of when you sometimes like, if you've seen like some of Ad Reinhardt's like really black paintings, when you sit there and stare and they kind of play tricks on your eyes, like, is it that experience? Ah, yes. Well, so yes, Ad Reinhardt, the wizard of black, as you look at his paintings, you slowly realize that there are different kinds of blacks. And actually, I find that maybe slightly more of a magical (laughs) experience. (laughs) This is like a magic trick. It sounds like very similar to your diamond experience. You're kind of like trying to figure out what you're seeing or not seeing. And... I have to say, it's pretty cool. I don't know if it's like great art, you know? Actually, I always say that like the art part is what's there when the novelty is gone. And this is like a lot of novelty for me and maybe it'll find its best symbolic use, but it's not there for me yet. But it's certainly very cool. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you. I haven't seen them in person ever, but it just strikes me as kind of like a design gimmick, which is interesting in and of itself. It's like innovative. I guess the science behind it is so complicated that he can never really explain to anyone how he makes them, which I think is because it's probably so toxic that if he explained to somebody how these things were made, (laughs) it would be its own kind of scandal to say nothing of his like endeavor to patent to color. I find them kind of gimmicky. And I I just wasn't a fan of this like feud. Didn't he have a feud with another artist, Stuart Semple, over his color? There's a long running series of stories (laughs) that our colleague Sarah Cascone has covered like she is the source for news <laughs> about the blackest blacks in the world. This artist named Seward Semple took great umbrage to Anish Kapoor's attempt to corner the market on the black is black and then produce his own black is black. It's a whole thing. I mean, I look at these things and I think, oh my God, you better be ready to be dusting these things constantly. (laughs) I I think this is a nightmare to show in terms of you better be ready to like constantly be making sure that there's not a speck of dust on these things because they only work by dint of their kind of magical disembodied quality. That raises questions like, are they sellable? Like (laughs) only certain people or institutions can buy them? Or is it just like a contest to see who's the blackest black? I mean, not everybody likes Anish Kapoor. You know, I think he's considered to be, I don't know, kind of cheesy in some quarters. I think he is an artist, for my money, who does something that's really hard to do in the contemporary world, which is like activate your interest in materials. Like it's really hard to make art that has the effect that art sometimes had in like a pre-modern time where you look at it and you're like stunned that it could be made even. I mean, because that was regularly people would be like just, you know, stunned how amazing the materials in like a Baroque sculpture could even be made in that way or that a painting could have that level of resolution and detail. It's very hard to have that effect. And just a couple of artists are working at that level of technical 
these days where they're like exploring materials and trying to give you the wow effect of being like, I can't yeah. believe that a shape like this was made. And the fact that you have to go to like someone who was making technology for like literally military applications and then <laughs> corner the market on that in order to make these things shows you like how hard it is to do that. Yeah. Um, like I said, it's fun. I recommend go seeing them. I'm not sure it's a lot more than fun just yet, but definitely of He's note. got a show on at the Palazzo Strozzi in Florence, a museum exhibition that I didn't see in person. Just to your point about the ambition of this work and also how he can like do these incredibly ambitious installations that work with the space. I mean, it does look interesting. He's not on my top list of like artists that I love, but it's ambitious for sure. There is that experience where you kind of see one of his spheres and you get up to it and it like forces you to kind of like reckon with your senses and you kind of like look to the side of it. Like that aspect of it, I can totally agree with you that I appreciate and it makes me appreciate him for that reason. He was like the experience artist before we had the term of like experience art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a showman. Well, thank you, Kate. Thank you, Eileen, for uh, talking with me. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yep. Thanks for having us, Ben. Yeah, it was nice to chat. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening. See you next week.